Living Hope Church. Once again, we're so grateful you've joined us this morning. Uh, if you have children that are going to go down to Children's Church, kindergarten through third grade, uh, they can dismiss out that back door with Miss Melody. Um, if your children are staying with us, there's activities on that back table that they are free to grab and use throughout the service. Uh, there's also a sermon notes designed for them um, where they can uh, play, bi uh, play bingo along with the sermon. Or if you're bored and want to play bingo, you can grab one as well. Uh, but we are so glad uh, that you have taken time out of your Easter morning uh, to join us. Um, so throughout church history, there's been a tradition as Christians across the world uh, gather and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And the tradition is quite simple. One person uh, says he is risen, and the rest of the group responds by saying he is risen indeed. So if you'll join me, we will do that. He is risen. All right, we can do better than that. He is risen. Awesome. So today we gather to celebrate the resurrection and the incredible implications of the resurrection in our lives. Uh, the resurrection is the uh, cornerstone of the Christian faith, and it changes everything for the believer. The grave could not hold Jesus. Death didn't have victory over him. And in him, in his life, in his death and resurrection, victory is available to all that will follow him. A risen Savior, an empty tomb, changed the world, and it still changes our lives today. Today, we're going to begin by simply reading Luke's account of the resurrection. It's in Luke 24, verse 1, if you want to look there in your Bible. But as you turn to Luke 24, let me set the scene and let me remind us of what happened on Friday night. If you were with us last week, we visited Jesus in the garden the night before he would die. And it was there in the garden that he saw the cost, he saw the pain, he saw the abandonment and wrath he would endure for our sin. And yet we saw that out of Jesus' love for us, he saw what was going to happen on the cross, and yet he still went and died for you and I. He said to God the Father, is there any other way? Can you take this cup from me? But there wasn't any other way our sins, that my sin could be forgiven. And so he went to the cross. Jesus was God in flesh, the only sinless one to ever live, and the only one who could pay the price, pay the wage, be the sacrifice for our sin. And he says, I'll go, I'll suffer so that they might walk free in forgiveness of sin. It was his love that compelled him to go to the cross. His love for you held him to the cross. His love led him to give his life for you and I. The crucifixion is not God's plan unraveling in a crazy world, but the crucifixion is God's love on display for you. It was my sin, your sin, the sins of the world that put him in the grave. He didn't die of natural causes because his time was done, but he died to pay the wage, the price, the death that our sin deserves. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all done things that go against his perfection. And the wage or the price for that sin is death and separation from God. The Bible says there's no way for us to earn our way back to God. There's no way for us to do enough good to get back in favor with God. We are utterly hopeless to earn our way to heaven in a relationship with God. And that's where Jesus comes in. John 3.16 tells us that God sent Jesus. He loved us so much. He sent Jesus to live the sinless life, the perfect life we couldn't live, and then to take the death we deserve. So that those who believe in him will be forgiven through his death and inherit eternal life. Romans 5, 6 through 8, uh, two of my favorite verses. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And then Paul goes on to say, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while there was nothing good about you and I, Christ died for us. Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for your sins, to pay the penalty that you deserve so that you could be forgiven through his sacrifice. So Jesus goes to the cross on Friday night. But Jesus' death without a resurrection isn't a hope-filled event. 
And it is there that we pick up the account in Luke chapter 24. Jesus' followers in that moment, they weren't hope-filled. They weren't expecting a resurrection. Resurrections don't happen. So they go to the tomb, not looking for a resurrected Jesus, but for a dead Jesus whose body needs to be prepared for burial before it begins to decay. So we're in Luke 24, starting in verse 1. Luke writes, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices and they, that they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be, be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and then on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today where we get to gather and we get to celebrate that you, Jesus, are alive. We get to celebrate the resurrection and the hope that that brings for our lives and for our future and for our today. But God, I pray that through uh, these next few moments that you would just uh, use uh, your words and use my words to speak to us. To speak to us about the hope we have if, you are, if we are your follower and speak to us about the hope that is available if we haven't yet followed you with our lives. So God, we just pray that you would speak to us in these next few moments. In your name we pray, amen. One of the things I love about the Bible is the honesty and the transparency of it. These ladies go to the tomb, they talk with some angels, and the angels tell them that Jesus is alive. They tell them he has risen from the grave. And so they go and they do what, what we all would do. They go and they start telling their friends this incredible news. And what is the response of the disciples, the apostles, the, the people that should know best? Verse 11 says, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Right? Luke could have so easily cleaned up this account and made the disciples heroes in the story who immediately responded with faith. But instead we read the disciples responded just like we would have. Rising from the grave is not a normal thing. It's not a part of their frame of reference. And so they dismiss these ladies as crazy. And only one responds by going to at least investigate. These men had lived life with Jesus for three years. He had predicted the resurrection, and yet they dismiss it as nonsense. And so if you're here today and the resurrection just seems like too much to believe, you are in good company alongside the disciples. I don't and you don't have time for a full-fledged defense of the resurrection this morning, but I do want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul addresses this very doubt, and he provides his personal evidence for the resurrection. 1 through 10, Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as, one, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Paul goes on in verse 19. He says, if the resurrection isn't true, then we as Christians are to be pitied most of all because we have lived our lives for a lie. Paul says that Christianity is not a better, a primarily a better, more moral way to live here on earth, but our faith uh, impacts everything about the way we live, about our eternity, about our faith, and our faith is about unflinching hope in the face of death. So let's unpack his argument for the resurrection and the implications of this, if it is indeed true. First, Paul uh, evidence, he points us to the scriptures. There are some 3,000 prophecies in the Old Testament that Paul's Jewish audience would have known. And he says Jesus has fulfilled them all. He was promised, he has come, and he has fulfilled the promises. For the course of 1,500 years, a Savior had been promised. He was written about by 30 different authors in the Old Testament. There's 3,000 predictions, and this man has come, and he has fulfilled them all, including rising from the dead. Paul is saying, friends, we longed for a Savior, and now he has come. This fulfillment of the Scriptures of the Old Testament is proof, Paul says, for who Jesus is. And it's proof that he did rise from the dead. Next, Paul says he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter. And then after that, to all of the disciples of the apostles. These disciples, these followers, including Peter, would go to their deaths proclaiming they had seen Jesus alive and the resurrection was real. These men, they would die for this claim that Jesus had risen from the grave. Now, your defense, your skepticism might say, well, maybe they're all lying about seeing him alive. Maybe they are, but, but why? The disciples gained no power, no wealth, no privilege, no prestige by claiming that Jesus had risen from the grave. In fact, it was their unwavering commitment to this claim and this truth that brought them persecution, pain, poverty, and ultimately led to their deaths. Why would you suffer and die and live in poverty for a lie? J.D. Greer adds, nor was it just commitment to Jesus' teaching that kept them going. As in they believed in his teaching so much that they just wanted to see this movement take hold. And so they made this exaggeration to, to, take it, uh, to keep it going and to, and to uh, keep it uh, uh, going throughout uh, the, the, the area. Peter himself is a convincing example. This isn't the case. Peter, after he had walked with Jesus for three years, after he had heard everything that Jesus had to teach, Peter denied Jesus three times in the space of a few hours as Jesus was being crucified in order to save his own life. That same Peter who caved in fear three times before the crucifixion would go on to his death proclaiming that Jesus was Lord, never once changing his story. So what changed for Peter? This coward just days before, what changed for him? There's only one thing. He saw the resurrected Jesus. And then Paul says he not only appeared to the disciples, but he appeared to more than 500 other brothers and sisters at one time. Like some like to say, well, maybe it was just a hallucination or a dream, wishful thinking that the disciples had. Perhaps, but Paul says, rarely do 500 plus people all have the same dream or hallucination at the same time. Paul says, there are all of these people that are still walking around, that have seen Jesus alive. They're still amongst us. He says, if you don't believe me, then go and find them and talk to them. And then Paul says he appeared to James. Now, James might not seem significant at first to you, but James was the brother of Jesus. 
And the Bible tells us in John 7, 5, that James didn't believe that his brother was the Messiah, the Son of God at first. And can you blame him? How many of you have a sibling? Does anyone else here have a sibling? Right? If your brother or sister claimed to be God incarnate, the Savior of the world, would you believe them? No, you would laugh at them. And James did too. But something changed for James. He saw the resurrected Jesus. According to Josephus, who is a secular Jewish historian, he's not a Christian. James, he says, became the leader of the Jerusalem church and was stoned for his belief that Jesus, his brother, was the resurrected Son of God. Something changed for James, and he lived and died for the belief that Jesus was the Son of God, that he had been raised from the dead. The resurrection, seeing the risen Savior, changed his life. Lastly, Paul says, he's appeared to me, and I am the last person that wanted to believe that Jesus was alive. If you don't know who Paul is, Paul had committed his career and his life to the belief that Jesus was not the Son of God, and that he had not been raised from the dead. And then Paul saw Jesus alive, and it changed everything for him. He went from persecuting and killing Christians to proclaiming Jesus' resurrection and laying his life down for the truth of his resurrection. And Paul says all of these things, all of these people are proof that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world who rose from the dead. Paul says all these things prove the resurrection is true. Paul says I have committed my life to this truth and so should you. And Paul wasn't the last skeptic to be convinced of this truth of the resurrection. Even in modern times, many have set out to disprove the resurrection only to be convinced of its reality. Perhaps the most well-known example of this would be Lee Strobel, who set out to disprove Christianity and the resurrection. His findings are recorded in the book, The Case for Christ, and in the movie by the same name. So if you're here and you have doubts but are open to investigating this claim of the resurrection, I would encourage you to start there. Frank Morrison's another example of this. He has recorded his findings in his book called Who Moved the Stone? And so Paul and those that saw Jesus alive, they lived their lives and died in many cases for this reality, this truth of the resurrection. And because of that truth, we see that there are some really big and really important implications of the resurrection for us to consider and respond to today. And it's there in the implications of the resurrection that we are going to rest for the remainder of our morning. And the first thing we see is that in Paul's life, he had previously found the message of Jesus objectional. Objectional. He didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. He didn't believe he was the Messiah, the Son of God, who had come to free the people from their sin. But when he saw Jesus, when he believed the resurrection, he changed course and he believed that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. And the same is true today. If the resurrection is indeed true, if Jesus is truly alive, that is proof that he is who he said he was, and he is who the Bible says he is. And so that's our first point. Because Jesus is alive, because he is resurrected, we can be confident in who he is. Jesus, in the Bible itself, makes some pretty bold claims about who he was. And those claims have eternal implications for our lives. Jesus, in the Bible, tells us that he was God in flesh. That he came to save the world. That he came to save you and I from our sins. That he lived a sinless life. That he, that he holds victory over death. That he was at the beginning that all things were created through him. The Bible tells us that Jesus, that he knows us. That he cares for us. That he is present with us. That he is interceding for us. And that he loves us. And the resurrection is proof that all of that is true. Nobody walks out of the grave three days later except for Jesus who is the son of God. 
Nobody conquers and is victorious over death in this life except for Jesus, who is God and holds the world in his hands. Nobody could fulfill the promises that Jesus makes to us except for Jesus, who is the Son of God and is a promise keeper and is able to fulfill all the promises as evidenced by the resurrection. Jesus is alive, and because of that, we can be confident that he is who he says he is and that he will keep his promises to you and I. The next incredible implication of the resurrection is that we can be forgiven. Because Jesus is alive, we can be forgiven. We see this truth in Paul's life in verses 9 and 10. It reads, we read it once. It says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul says to you and I, look at my life. Before I saw Jesus, before I followed Jesus, I persecuted his church. Paul held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. He arrested Christians everywhere he went. He was a murderer, but when he met Jesus, it changed everything in his life. Paul went from persecuting the church to one of the fathers of the church. You may be here, you may be like, well, you don't know who I am or what I've done. And that's true, I don't. You might say, you don't know what my college years look like. You don't know the language I use at work. You don't know the things I have done. There is no way God could ever forgive me. You might think, well, I at least have to get my life figured out before God would ever forgive me. And to that argument, Paul says, look at my life. If there was ever a person that seemed less likely to follow Jesus and less likely to be forgiven by God, it was Paul. Paul's livelihood was the persecution and murder of Christians. In fact, Paul was on his way to persecute the church in Damascus when Jesus appeared to him and his life was changed. Paul hadn't improved his behavior. He hadn't cleaned up his act, but he was on his way to arrest, persecute, and kill Jesus' followers. And Jesus appeared to him and said, come and follow me and you will be forgiven. And Paul says, if I can be forgiven, then trust me, you can be forgiven and restored as well. The scriptures prophesied that Jesus would die for the sins of the world. That the sins of the world would be put upon him. It's one of the reasons that the cross was so unspeakably awful. We, we talked about this truth last week. And in his love for you and I, Jesus endured the agony, the anguish, the pain, the abandonment, the wrath of the cross. And then rose victorious over it all. Jesus was dying for murder and betrayal and dishonesty and selfishness and uncleanliness and abuse. Jesus paid the price so that anyone that would repent from their sin and make him Lord would be forgiven. And because of that, Paul knew even he, a persecutor and murderer of Jesus' church, could be forgiven. Jesus paid the price for your sins. He rose victorious over the grave. And because of that, you can know that you can be forgiven. On the cross, Jesus became your sin, all of it. He became your selfishness. He became your compromised integrity. He became your broken promises. He became your marital unfaithfulness. He became all those things that you've hidden and lied about. God laid those upon him. The Bible says God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Our punishment, my punishment was laid upon him. And it's by his sacrifice that we can be healed and forgiven. I use this example way too often if you are with us regularly, and I apologize for that. But I love this, this example because it's so amazing, such a powerful reminder to me. I think we use it every Easter season. But as Jesus hung on the cross, paying the price for your sins and my sins, his final words were this. As he, right before he took his last breath, he said, it is finished. 
And in English, it reads as three different words, but those three words are translated from one single Greek word, and the Greek word is the word tetelestai. And I know that word in of itself is not that exciting, but what it means is life-altering. This word tetelestai, as uttered by Jesus, it, it means simply that all of your debts and sins are forgiven. But not only is that the definition of the word, but he says this word in the perfect passive indicative tense. And I know that's exciting. And it's exciting because when he says it in the perfect passive indicative sense, it means that all of your past sins are forgiven, all of your present sins are forgiven, and all of your future sins are forgiven. And so he's not just saying all of your sins in the past are forgiven, but you've got to keep coming in every uh, week and having your new sins forgiven. But he declares of your life, your past sins are forgiven, your present sins are forgiven, and so is every future sin you will commit. When you repent and turn to Jesus, all of your sins are forgiven. In him, all uncertainties are erased because you are completely and totally forgiven. You don't have to live your life uncertain of, have I been forgiven? You don't have to live your life uncertain of your eternity. In Jesus, you are completely and totally forgiven. Romans 8.1, Paul says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 8, 8, 36 says, so if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. And so on the cross, Jesus speaks over every one of your past sins. It is finished if you turn to him. Jesus speaks over whatever sin you are struggling with in life today, whatever the addiction is, whatever the vice, it is finished if you will turn to him. Jesus speaks of your life, I know that you are going to falter and screw up and sin again, but don't worry, because in me, those sins are finished as well. In Jesus, you can be completely and totally forgiven. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can be forgiven. If we will put our faith in Jesus, we will be forgiven. And not only will we be forgiven, but we are completely forgiven, and there is no more guilt, no more shame, no more condemnation for those who have trusted their life to him. And so if you're here and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, then he invites you to follow him and to trust him with your life. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. It's not a maybe, it is a you will be saved. And so that's you, the invitation of the resurrection for you is to turn and follow Jesus today. And if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, then live with that reality that you are forgiven. You don't have to live in regret and shame, but you are called to live in the freedom of your forgiveness. That Jesus paid the price for and sealed with his resurrection. Walk forward in that freedom and that joy today. And that leads to our next point. Because Jesus is alive, we can be transformed. We read here, Paul doesn't just receive forgiveness and then go back to his old way of life. But when he follows Jesus, he is forgiven and his life is transformed. I love verse 10. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. God's grace, God's forgiveness, the power of God's spirit changed everything about Paul's life. He went from a murderer and hater of God to sold out to sharing God's love and hope with the world around him. He experienced God's forgiveness and it changed his life and he gave of his life to share that message with others. When you trust Jesus with your life, it transforms and changes who you are. Paul writes in Romans, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. 
And just as God raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Paul says the power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in the believer, and so naturally you will be transformed to be more like him if you are following him. So if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and your life looks no different, you have to ask yourself, have I really followed him? Because in Jesus, lives are transformed. Priorities are changed. Families are transformed. Relationships are restored. Because Jesus is alive, I can be changed. I can be transformed to be more like him. We have hope. We have a future. We have victory because of the resurrection. The next implication of the resurrection is found in verse 55 of that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be, thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so because Jesus is alive today, death has lost its sting. The late Billy Graham said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. He says, don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. He also said, do I fear death? No, I look forward to death with great anticipation. I am looking forward to seeing God face to face, and that day could happen any day. It is only through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the grave that we can experience this kind of confidence even in death. Jesus promises that if we believe in him, we will inherit eternal life with him. The gospels promise it, and the resurrection seals it. Paul in Romans 6 right now, writes, Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus dies and pays the price for the sins of those who believe in him. And so if you are his follower, he has died for your sins. He has paid the price for your sins and they are forgiven. And in his resurrection, which we are celebrating today, he has defeated death and it no longer has mastery over him. If you are his follower, it no longer has mastery over you. Jesus in John 11, while talking to Martha, said this to her. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus has risen from the grave. He is alive and he offers you forgiveness and eternal life if you will follow after him. But do you believe this? And that question sits there for all of us to consider. Do you believe this? And do you believe it to the point that you have trusted your life to Jesus? The resurrection is the single most significant day, not just in the Christian faith, but in the history of the world. Because its implications go beyond this temporal world, but they affect our eternity. Do you believe this? And have you trusted Jesus with your life? And that's our final point. Jesus is alive. But do you believe this? We as a church wholeheartedly believe this is the most important question you will ever answer. There's only one Savior who has overcome the curse of death for us by dying under it, in our place, and then rising again. And what you do with him, what you do with Jesus in the resurrection, determines whether death for you is permanent or just a transition to an eternity in heaven that is real and greater than anything you and I can imagine. But do you believe this? 
As we drive throughout Wyoming, as we crisscross the state, we constantly see signs that alert us to the fact that we are crossing the continental divide. And the continental divide is significant because a raindrop that falls west of the divide will flow to the Pacific Ocean. Well, a raindrop, or in the case of this week, a snowflake that falls east of the divide will make its way to the Gulf of Mexico. And so although they both could fall within feet of each other, their destination is miles and worlds apart. In much the same way, we all live this life in the same world, but what we do with Jesus, what we believe about him, will dictate our eternity. So do you believe in the resurrection, and have you ever surrendered your life and followed Jesus? Have you ever experienced the incredible implications of the reality that he is alive? And so as we wrap up, and before we head off to brunch or uh, to watch the end of the third and final round of the Masters, I want to give you the opportunity and the time to respond. And so first, if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus, the question for you to consider is this. Do you believe Jesus is alive? And if so, will you turn and follow him with your life? And if you're here today and for the first time you believe that Jesus is indeed who he said he was, and you believe the resurrection is indeed true, will you surrender your life and follow him today? We talked about it at the beginning of the sermon, but your sin separates you from God and in eternity with him. Your sin, the Bible says, deserves the consequence of death, but Jesus took that consequence and he paid the price for your sins when he died, despite living a sinless life. But as we have talked about, he didn't stay in the grave, but he rose victorious over death. And the Bible is clear that if you believe that to be true, if you repent and turn from your sin and you follow after Jesus, then he will forgive you. He will transform you and he promises you an eternity with him and a joy and a purpose here in this life. So if that's you, will you surrender your life and follow him today? There's nothing magic. There's no magic words, but you can do that quite simply in your seat by praying something with a surrender heart as simple as this. Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe you came and lived a sinless life I couldn't live, and I believe you died the death my sin deserved. Jesus, I believe you rose from the grave and you are alive today. Would you please forgive me of my sins and transform my life because I want you to be the Lord, the boss, the leader of my life. The Bible says if you pray something like that with a surrendered heart, then you will be forgiven. So is that you? Do you believe? Do you believe this? Or maybe you're here today and you're not ready to follow Jesus, but you have questions. Would you have the courage today to, to, or, or sometime this week to find answers to those questions? You can come and talk with me or talk with a friend that you know is a follower of Jesus. As we said, we believe this is the most important decision you will ever make. Would you at least take time to consider the implications of the resurrection on your life? And finally, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you spend a moment giving thanks for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Give thanks in these next few moments for the forgiveness and love you've experienced. And then consider, is the reality of the resurrection, is Jesus, is my forgiveness the priority and purpose of my life, or is it something else? If it's something else, would you repent and make Jesus the Lord, the leader, the priority of your life, out of your love and gratitude for what he's done? So Emily's going to come, and she's going to play for us. What we're going to do is I'm going to pray. We're just going to stay in our seats, and as she plays, we're just going to take a minute or two with our heads bowed, and we're just going to consider the implications of the resurrection in our life. After a minute or two, I'll come, and I'll close us in prayer, 
give you some announcements, and send you on your way. But if you'll join me, we'll pray and then ponder the resurrection. Dear Lord, we thank you for these moments that we get to pause and we get to reflect and we get to read the story of the resurrection. We thank you that we see how the resurrection transformed the life of Paul and how it is still transforming and changing lives today. God, I pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would speak clearly to them in these next moment or two. That you would reveal yourself to them. That they would see their need for forgiveness, their need for a Savior. God, I pray they have the courage to surrender their life and trust you. Lord, I pray for the many here that have uh, been followers for a long time. That you would remind us anew, afresh of the resurrection. That you would remind us anew of the forgiveness that we have experienced, which isn't, which isn't partial, but it is total and it is complete. That you would remind us anew of the promises we have in you. Of forgiveness, of, of an eternity in heaven with you. The promise of your presence as we walk through this life. The promise that you hear and answer prayers. The promise that you care for and love for us. So God, would you just speak to us in these next few moments. Would you remind us of who you are? May we leave resting and celebrating the joy that you are alive. God, we love you. We thank you for who we are in you. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Lord, we thank you that the grave could not hold you. Lord, we thank you that you are alive, and in your life, we can have life. May we walk out of here in that joy, in that life, in that forgiveness today. God, we love you, and it's your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, again, we can't thank you enough for joining us on this Easter morning. Uh, if you have children, they didn't get bags. Make sure they get a bag on their way out and uh, some toys and activities. If you're new to Living Hope Church, there should be a welcome card somewhere in the area of you. If you wouldn't mind putting that in a box, uh, there's a wood box on that back table. We would appreciate it. Uh, in terms of announcements, they're on the, the back of your sermon notes. But uh, normally we have small group Bible study, which meets on Sunday nights, but that's not happening today. We have youth group and kids nights, which meets on Wednesdays from 6 to 7. And there's a bunch of summer dates on there, too. If you have questions about any of those, come and see me. Um, so we're going to end the same way we began, but you've got to participate with me, so we've got to do it better, all right? He is risen. He is risen. Awesome. You guys have a wonderful rest of your Easter and a great week, and we hope to see you again next week. You are dismissed.